Amen. Thank you, Melbro. It's good to see your face today, Melissa. Um, hey, we are starting out a brand new series. If this is your first Sunday back this new year, welcome. We are glad that you are here. It was this Sunday a year ago where I stood up here and I talked about Sabbath. And then I got mono and was out for the next six weeks. So I'm a little nervous today. Uh, we're going to talk about the Chronicles of the Kings. And there's a section in the Old Testament, the left side of your Bible, that is working through a bunch of the kings of this nation called Israel. And we're going to look at who is king of our lives. Who is it that we are putting our trust in? Who is on the throne of our lives? We have a very vivacious, wonderful daughter, six-year-old redhead, who wants a little sister so bad that, so that she could be the king over that sister. She wants, she says, literally, uh, I just want to boss somebody around. And I said, that's what you do to me all day long. Um, we also today, uh, this is today the birthday of the king, Elvis Presley. It's his birthday. So it's kind of a fitting day. It's also my dad's birthday. Shout out to wherever you are. But you know what's also interesting is in less than two weeks, um, there will be a new person who is running our country. And we are going to gather as a nation in just a couple of weeks. And we are going to be saying that there is somebody new. Now, wherever you fit on that spectrum, not going to go there today. We have to have our allegiance somewhere. We have to give our, our respect and our love and our devotion, our commitment to King Jesus. As we go through the next couple of months looking at all of these kings... You're going to see how many of them have fallen short. And so over and over again in the next couple of months, we have to just keep turning our eyes to the Lord. Some of us, we live like kings. We think we're kings. When you drive out of here, you are going to be the king of the highway. Some of you want to be king of your fantasy football league. Some of you are just the king of the Christmas lights. Whatever it is, we want to make sure that we know specifically where we are and where God is. Um, we are going to just set this whole series up by showing a video. Uh, typically, we like to keep them on the short side, but this is so good, and it's, it's kind of laying a foundation for really what we're going to be talking about. There's this collection of books, First um, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And if you look and you kind of just read them all through, it gets a little bit confusing. And what we want to do is we want to just give you a, a big snapshot of, of the people of Israel, the kings. And today we're going to actually start all that off by how did they get a king to begin with. But uh, this is an eight-minute video, but we, we wrestled over this and we said, this is important. We need this. The ushers will come down and bring popcorn and candy. Just kidding. Um, but would you just, just take this in? Um, we're going to watch this together, and then we'll come back, and we're going to blow it all up. All right? Check it out. The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. 
And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. 
Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both built altars and prayed to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. The big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered, and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now, chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so, God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decisions. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings, like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But... Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up, Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings.
Yeah. So now you get it, right? It's kind of easy once you see it in something like that. It's, we would, I mean, we could really just, yeah. Uh, so we'll actually be unpacking a lot of that over the next couple months. But if you're like a little bit foggy on that, don't worry. We're all foggy. It's a little bit crazy. But we're going to just take some of these kings and we're going to highlight some of them and go through. I want you to understand as we're looking at the chronicles of the kings that we serve a God and, and, and his idea from the very beginning, God's plan from the very beginning is he always wanted to be our king. Back it up all the way to Genesis 1, the beginning of the word. He wants to be king and he sets up a kingdom right there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed them. This is Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. These are really the first king and queen, and, and they have freedom. They get to appoint animals' names, and they are ruling over, and, and everything is great. And really, they can do whatever they want there in the garden, except for one thing. God says, don't touch the fruit on this tree. And so they go through, and we know this story just a couple chapters later. They go, and they grab the fruit, and now... Earth is compromised. Sin has infiltrated the kingdom. And from that point on, there will never be a human king that will do for God's people in the way that God wanted to. God says, I want to be your king. Um, the chapter that we're going to look through in the book is, is 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, so if you would go there, if you don't have a Bible, look at the seat rack in front of you. If you don't own one, feel free to grab that. You're not going to be counted as stealing. It's a gift for you. Um, but 1 Samuel 8, and a good way for me to memorize this, this is just weird, but this is how I do it, is uh, Samuel King's Chronicles. It's reverse alphabetical order. It's the only way I've ever remembered that. But 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, and what we're going to look at is there's this playing out of how did we actually get the first king? Um, where this story ends is that Saul is made the first king of the people of Israel. I'm giving away the end. But before Saul was there, God had appointed judges, but God essentially was king. Now, when people wanted a king, they would appoint a king. And that king, in a way, from all the other cultures, they would be like this demigod. That they would do the will of the people. God's perspective was, God said, I'm going to be the king. And we can install a king here, but I want that king to be doing the will of me. And people said, no, 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 we want a king that will get God to do our will. And it's totally backwards and it's totally messed up. And so as we look through, and there's an outline in the bulletin that you went through, uh, that you have today, uh, that there was a king that the people wanted. We'll go on to say that there was a king that the people needed. But the king that the people wanted, we have this assumption that God is holding out on us. We foolishly think that God is holding out on us. And so we don't get from God what we want to get from God. And so as we walk through this, let's look here. Um, and as you look at the people, um, they're looking around, the people of Israel, they're looking around and they look at all of the other nations and they're saying, they have something that we don't have. And so we foolishly want what everybody else has. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to go through this. It says this. And it came about when Samuel was old, now Samuel is a prophet of Israel, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. 
His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and they perverted justice. These guys are not good guys. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, which is not really a nice thing to say, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. There's a problem in the kingdom. The people say, God, we don't want you anymore. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. The problem is God said, you are my people. I don't want you to be like everybody else. I want you to stand out. You are going to be this people who don't have an earthly king, but you have a king in heaven who will provide for you, who will do all for you that you ever ever wanted and ever needed. And, And Samuel is having trouble with this. Maybe there's a little disappointment for Samuel because his sons were blowing it. And so he's pleading with God, God, do something. And God says, give them what they want. Listen to the voice of the people. This is no surprise for God. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 17, it says this, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and you live in it and you will say... I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. You look at this and there's no surprises for God. God who's all-knowing, God who knows everything from the beginning to the end. He's not surprised in this and so he says... Give them a king. If you go on to read Deuteronomy 17, God gives some pretty specific things that he says that he wants his kings to do. And as we go throughout the series, you will see that there are many, many kings that don't follow God's prescription for what he wants. If you go on to read Deuteronomy 17, it just says this. Now it shall come about when the king, when he sits on his throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God says, take the king in the presence of the Levites, have him write down all the words that I'm instructing you. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. You go through the history of Israel and the kings over and over again. They fail to do this and because of that, they have destruction. They see destruction in their midst. And so not only do the Israelites look around and they foolishly want what everybody else has, um, but they foolishly assume that rejecting God will cost them Nothing. 
We can just reject God. We don't need him anymore. And, and we're not really going to even feel it. Just give us the king. We just need somebody like we need an in-between. We need to go between. And so you look at this and, and God warns them. And, and if you look, go back to 1 Samuel 8. And in verse 10, Samuel kind of lays it out. If you want a king, I just want you to have some heads up. This is what you are going to face. Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him of a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. And just, just keep in mind how many times Samuel says the words, he will take. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them. They're all not the donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves, you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The people of Israel at this time, they want the power of God, but they don't want the control of God in their lives. And Samuel's saying, hey, if you reject God as king and you take on a man king, a human king, he's going to take all of this. Your life will change drastically. They had an assumption. Their assumption is that rejecting God will cost nothing. The truth is that rejecting God will cost them everything. To just understand this God, this king, that, that really is this benevolent and great and mighty and awesome God. Later on in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 12, it says, If God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You man of little faith, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nations of the world, everybody else... They eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. They look all around them. They see all of these nations, they have a king, and they don't realize that their God, their king, has already given them everything that they want. And they say, oh, we, want, we want the man king. It's not going to cost us anything. And what they realize and what they will find out and what we will be studying is that it will cost them everything. A lot of us, our assumption where we start, what we think is that when we follow God, Following God will cost us everything. Honestly, that's a big trouble for us. We, we look at, at the, the Bible and we look at all of what is laid out and how we are called to live our lives. And our assumption is that following God will cost us everything. The truth is that following God will cost us everything. I set you up, didn't I? What I really wanted to do was say following God will cost you nothing. Now, God has given us a free gift in that he has been gracious toward us. But 
that, that's not a call for us to just kind of lay back and enjoy life. There's a cost to following God. If he is truly to be our king, then we lay everything down for him. Jesus makes it clear a couple chapters later in Luke. In Luke 14, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Following God, making God as king in your life, costs everything. This is not a passage about somebody coming to Jesus. This is for all of us who believe this is a daily thing. This is the cost of discipleship. This is the cost of following our king. So why do it? Because he's a good king. Because he is an all-powerful king. But many of us, when we see what it is that God is calling us to, when we look at what God is asking us to do as we follow him, we say the cost is too great. And so, look, we, we don't really like install kings to rule over our lives in quite the same way, but like in our own personal kingdom, in our own personal world, we make that substitution all the time. We foolishly replace God with things. We also, we also replace God with people. Um, and it's not just kings. Um, I'm just going to jump over to Romans 1. It says this, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This has always been our issue. And so the things that we have in our life, you can look at this in your outline, but there's several things. I mean, look at all of the stuff that, that is on here that we can kind of replace God. God, you are no longer number one, but uh, my entertainment, my electronics, my phone, right? Or status. Your job, your work is everything for you. Your possessions, if I can just get the newest, the next best car. We're so fixated on all of these things. Some of our, our hobbies and sports and, and we work out. I had to give up dancing, right? Like it's just... Thank you. Um, but we have replaced God. If you just take a couple moments and you think about it, God has been replaced in our lives. We have not given him what he deserves, and that is to be king. When we put God as king in our life and the cost is everything, then we freely, we freely give, we freely serve with our time and our talent and our treasure. It was a beautiful moment this morning. I was in middle school for a little bit and Pastor Josh Simpson, he, he says, hey, if you uh, don't have a Bible, can I get all the leaders to grab Bibles for all the kids? And I saw like 25 leaders stand up in our middle school room. I'm like, Wow, how awesome is this that we have so many people just giving of themselves and they're, they're pouring themselves out. When, when God is your king, you pour yourselves out and you give of your time and your talent. When we go to, to give offering today, we give of God and we say, look, God, you are my king. Therefore, everything I have, all my possessions, everything I have, I know it belongs to you and I give freely. How would that change your personal life? What would that do for our church here at Calvary? What would that do for the big church, the big C church, if that is how we lived with really God being our king? So the people knew that there was a king that they wanted, but God knew that there was a king that the people needed. We have a God who gives us all that we need. Look in verse 19. Nevertheless, even after hearing this huge long list, he will take, he will take, he will take. 
Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. And so Samuel said to the men of Israel, go man to every city. Now, uh, how I look at this, and as I was reading through this, you just see that God relents. God, in a way, just says, if this is what you want, if this is what you're fighting for, I'm just going to give it to you. Now, we have lots of great words to describe God. And as I'm sitting there and I'm studying and I'm thinking about what I want to share with you, um, this word acquiescing comes into my head. And I'm like, why is this? And I look it up. And we can argue about this. I've kind of struggled whether or not to put this in here. But God in this moment feels like this king who, in a sense, acquiesces. I looked it up and... Uh, and I put all the little fun and pronunciations in there. But the definition here is to accept something reluctantly but without protest. I kind of just get this sense that God is looking at his people. And after describing everything, after hearing everything from the people, after getting all of the warnings, they're all, nope, nope, nope. We want a king. You're not cutting it for us, God. So God says, all right. Let's give them what they want. A friend of mine worked at Hume Lake. If you've been to Hume Lake, you know it's a six-hour drive, unless you take the wrong road and it's like eight. It's really bad. Uh, But also when you get to Hume Lake, it's surrounded by nothing. There is no cell coverage. Uh, If you want to go to uh, the grocery store, you pack up the family and you make the hour drive into Fresno. It's wonderful. And so... One of my friends who was up there and he's working, um, he decides, let's get out. Now, there's something that takes place. It's like mountain fever. Like you just got to get out every once in a while. You need to see like stuff that's open past eight o'clock. You want to see a Starbucks, right? You got to get off the mountain a little bit. And so uh, this guy, he says, uh, he's talking to his wife. We, we got to do something. Let's do something fun for the kids. Let's take them to Disneyland. We're going to wake him up really, really early and we're going to get off the mountain. We're going to make the huge drive and we're going to spend the whole day at Disneyland. He's so excited. They're getting ready. It's been a while. They're overdue for a little vacation. Wakes the kids up super early. He's all, guys, get dressed. We are going to go do something awesome. We're going to go do something so amazing. You guys are so excited. You're going to, you're going to love it. And they're all, do we get to go to McDonald's? No, no, no. It's even better than McDonald's. It's like, just like, it's huge. They're all, we want to go to McDonald's. Guys, okay, hold on, hold on. McDonald's great and all that. What we have planned for you, the stuff that we want to give you is just like McDonald's times a million. It's so amazing. It's so great. Side note, um, we've brainwashed our kids into thinking that McDonald's is awful and horrible for you. And so like our kids growing up, we drive by McDonald's and they'd say, Mommy, Daddy, how come those people are in the drive-thru at McDonald's? Don't they know it's going to kill them? (laughs) Side note, we're moving on. These kids say, we get to go to McDonald's? And they're like, no, no, it's even better. It's even better. We want to go to McDonald's. We want to. Guys, so much better. So we want to go. In the end, 
they threw such a fit. They were so upset that in the end, he's all, let's go to McDonald's. They took the hour drive into Fresno. They played in the little playground. They ate their chicken nuggets and they went back. They acquiesced. I, I just, I hear that story and I think that's, that must be how God looks at us sometimes. I want to give you this. I want to be your God. I want to provide. I want to give you everything you could possibly need. But you want McDonald's. You want your iPhone. You want pleasure. And God says, hold out. I have something even better. They say, we want a king that will go fight our battles. And God says, hold on, I've done that before. In Exodus 14, they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea, right? Moses said, don't fear, stand by, see the salvation of the Lord. He will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians you've seen today, you'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep silent. Go back to 1 Samuel. And God says a couple chapters later in verse 10 or chapter 10, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I fought those battles for you. The power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, but you today have rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and all your distresses. Yet you've said, no, we want McDonald's. Give us a king. feels like that's a little bit of our posture towards God. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We would rather have McDonald's than Disneyland. This, unfortunately, is how the story plays out throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And you look at them, I look at them and say, idiots, fools, don't you know what you're missing out on? But we do the same thing. You and I, we do the same thing. It's not give us a king, but we replace God. We ignore God. We don't have a relationship with God because we are seeking everything else. God sees this too. Later on, he speaks through another prophet. This prophet, his name is Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2, God says these words and he pours out. We get to see the heart of the king here. Has a nation changed God's when they were not gods, but my people, my people, they have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. God says, I'm a fountain of living waters. You come to me and you drink and you will have all that you need. Instead of going to the fountain of living waters, God's people, they hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, I looked at the dates. One month from today, February 8th, there's a crew of us that are going to Israel and we're going to go to a little town called Bet Shemesh. 
And when we go to Bet Shemesh, there is a 54,000 gallon cistern that is bone dry, empty because it is broken. If you think, if you don't know what a cistern is, just think they dug a huge hole underground and then they plastered it up. Just like a swimming pool, if you have a swimming pool that has a crack in it, the water is going to seep out. And God says, instead of coming to this fountain where you have everything you could possibly want, you have hewn out cisterns. They are breaking and all of the blessing, everything that you are seeking, whatever you're going after, will be gone. So 3,000 years later, next month, we'll stand in this empty, dry place and we will read that passage. And we will refocus our hearts and we will say, God... We need to come after you. You are the fountain. You provide all that we need. Unfortunately, the people of Israel, they said, give us a king. We want a king. And the result, and you can see this probably a little bit more clearly and close up on the back of your outline. This is the timeline. Look at all these kings. The next couple weeks we'll lay out Saul becomes the king. They appoint him as a king and, and he blows it. We have three kings representing the United Kingdom of Israel. But those three kings, it breaks up. And then you see there's just a litany of just failure. Not only is our God a, an acquiescing king, but he's a forgiving king. And even in 1 Samuel chapter 12, God's grace and his forgiveness still reign. And it says... In 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the, Lord, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. God has given you a choice. God has said, you can follow me, I will be your king, or you can do what you want. It'd be great, it'd be nice and easy if God just said, you will follow me. I want to just read a selection. Um, This is called The Choice by an author named Max Lucado. And I just want us to understand, God could have forced us to just follow him, to love him. And he could have said, nope, you're not getting a king. You will follow me as a king. But God gave us a choice. And this is why. He placed one scoop of clay upon another until a form lay lifeless on the ground. All of the garden's inhabitants paused to witness the event. Hawks hovered, giraffes stretched, and trees bowed. Butterflies paused on petals and watched. You will love me, nature, God said. I made you that way. You will obey me, universe, for you are destined to do so. You will reflect my glory, skies, for that is how you were created. But this one will be like me. This one will be able to choose All was silent as the creator reached into himself and removed something yet unseen. A seed. It's called choice. The seed of choice. Creation stood in silence and gazed upon the lifeless form. An angel spoke. But what if he he chooses not to love the creator finished? Come, I will show you. Unbound by today, God and the angel walked into the realm of tomorrow. There, seed, the fruit of the seed of choice, both the the sweet and the bitter. The angel gasped at what he saw. Spontaneous love, voluntary devotion, chosen tenderness. Never had he seen anything like these. He felt the love of the Adams and he heard the joy of Eve and her daughters. He saw the food and marveled at the warmth. 
Heaven has never seen such beauty, my Lord. Truly, this is your greatest creation. Ah, but you've only seen the sweet. Now, witness the bitter. A stench enveloped the pair. The angel turned in horror and exclaimed, What is it? The creator spoke only one word, selfishness. The angel stood speechless as they passed through centuries of repugnance. Never had he seen such filth, rotten hearts, ruptured promises, forgotten loyalties, children of the creation wandering blindly in lonely labyrinths. This is the result of the choice, the angel asked? Yes. They will forget you? They will reject you? Yes. They will never come back? Some will, most won't. What will make them listen? The creator walked on in time further and further into the future until he stood by a tree. A tree that would be fashioned into a cradle and even then he could smell the hay that would surround him. With another step into the future he paused before another tree. It stood alone, a stubborn ruler of a bald hill. The trunk was thick, the wood was strong, the stony brow of another hill. And soon he would be mounted on it and he felt the wood rub against a back that he did not yet wear. Would you go down there, the angel asked? I will. Is there no other way? There isn't. Wouldn't it be easier just to not plant the seed? Wouldn't it be easier not to give the choice? It would, the creator spoke slowly, but to remove the choice is to remove the love. And he looked around the hill and he foresaw a scene. Three figures hung on three crosses, arms spread, heads fallen forward. They moaned with the wind. Men clad in soldiers' garb sat on the ground near the trio. They played games in the dirt and they laughed. Men clad in religion stood off to one side. They smiled, arrogant and cocky. They protected God, they thought, by killing this false one. Women clad in sorrow huddled at the foot of the cross. Speechless. Faces tear-streaked, eyes downward. One put her arm around another and tried to lead her away, and she wouldn't leave. I will stay, she said softly. I will stay. All heaven stood to fight. All nature rose to rescue. All eternity poised to protect. But the creator gave no command. It must be done, he said, and withdrew. But as he stepped back in time, he heard the cry that he would someday scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wrenched at tomorrow's agony. The angel spoke again. It would be less painful, the creator interrupted softly, but it wouldn't be love. They stepped back into the garden. The maker looked earnestly at the clay creation. A monsoon of love swelled up within him and God's form bent over the sculptured face and breathed. Dust stirred on the lips of the new one. The chest rose, cracking the red mud, and the cheeks freshened. A finger moved and an eye opened. But more incredible than the moving of the flesh was the stirring of the spirit. Those who could see the unseen gasped. Perhaps it was the wind who said it first. Perhaps it was the stars that saw the moment that made him blink ever since. Maybe it was left to an angel to whisper it. It looks like. It appears so much like it is him. The angel wasn't speaking of the face, the features, or the body. He was looking inside at the soul. It's eternal, gasped another. Within the man, God had placed a divine seed. A seed of his self. The God of might, 
the king of might had created, not a creature, but another creator. And the one whom had chosen to love had created one who could love in return. You and I have a choice. And God has created and built within you that choice. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And how we want to respond, my, how I would encourage you to respond, is that you would proclaim this morning that God is your king. And so as we respond, that we would take a posture of submission before our king. And to do this, I'm going to ask if you're able to physically, that you would just bow before the king. Um, You might need to turn around in your seat. You might need to just find some open space. And we're going to sing a song. It's called All the Poor and Powerless. And that you would connect with us, the creation, and that we would choose to move forward in, in, in praising our God. Now we have stations. I'll come back up in a minute after this song and we'll, we'll get started on that. But for now, just for this song, would you just pause and would you submit your heart? Would you just set yourself up in a posture of submission and worship to our King? And let's praise him. Let's connect with these words and let's give him our hearts right now. Let me pray. God, would you be here with us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you move and that our hearts would be moved, that we would worship you as our king this morning. God, help us as we let go of some of the idols, the things that we've put on the throne, and that you this morning would be our king. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.